0: Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the story of the D.C. mansion murders. But first, your true crime headlines. In the southern Alaska town of Seward, five people have been arrested in connection with the death of 21-year-old Preston Atwood, who was last seen near an area beach on August 25th. His body was found five days later. This week, police arrested 24-year-old Timothy Ryan, 19-year-olds Tyler Godard and Laurel Correa, and 46-year-old Jennifer Heron in connection with Atwood's murder. A fifth man, 18-year-old James Helberg, was also arrested when he returned to Alaska from Idaho to turn himself in. The five have been charged with various crimes including murder, manslaughter, conspiracy to commit murder, and witness tampering. A sixth person, 39-year-old Melanie Godard, was charged with witness tampering. She is being held on $5,000 bail, and the rest are being held on $500,000 bail. Police have released few additional details in the case, including Atwood's cause of death and the location where his body was found. A Los Angeles school teacher was arrested and charged with felony hit and run for an October accident that left a bicyclist severely injured. 52 year old Molly Jane Hone, at the time a fifth grade teacher at a Los Angeles public school, struck the bicyclist with her Mini Cooper on the night of October 25th and then left the scene. Surveillance video from the scene captured the accident and was released to the news media in an effort to locate the driver. The bicyclist suffered a broken leg, broken arm, and fractured spine, according to the LAPD. The damaged Mini Cooper was later towed to an area garage, where the owner notified authorities after having seen news reports of the accident. At the time, police reported that the driver was not cooperating with investigators. Hone was removed from the classroom after being a person of interest in this case. Her attorney has stated that she intends to plead not guilty. An Indiana teen was killed while behind the wheel of her own car when a backseat passenger discharged an AR-15-style rifle. Nineteen-year-old Annalisa McMillan was shot in the back by her passenger, 22-year-old Austin Smith, who was seated behind her in her vehicle as she drove. Responding police attempted to resuscitate the woman, but she was pronounced dead at a nearby hospital. Smith, who describes McMillan as his best friend in posts on social media, has been charged with reckless homicide and criminal recklessness while armed with a deadly weapon. He is being held on bond in the Grant County jail and it is unclear if he has an attorney. Those were your true crime headlines. Next, Washington DC's highest profile murder case, but first, a quick break. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, you'll hear the story of the DC mansion murders. Four people killed blocks away from the vice president's home a game-changing clue from leftover food, and the highest-profile murder case of the U.S. Capitol's history. Decades before the so-called D.C. mansion murders happened, two people at the center of it fell in love. Amy Martin and Savas Savopoulos met as teens in Silver Spring, Maryland. It's one of the best-known areas near Washington, D.C., a place Goldie Hawn, Dave Chappelle, and Connie Chung have called home. It has a bustling downtown, spacious parks, and hosts multiple ethnic festivals each year. In other words, it's not a bad place to grow up. While Amy and Savas knew each other during high school, romance wouldn't blossom between the two until several years later. They attended the same university in Maryland, during which outgoing Savas had a serious crush on quieter Amy. Finally, during their fourth year of college, she agreed to a date with him. From there, things moved pretty quickly. In 1994, not long after they graduated, the couple said their I do's at a lively, Greek Orthodox wedding. A photo from the event shows the pair leaning their heads together, appearing very much in love. They had three children together, Abigail, Katerina, and Philip. While raising the kids, Amy worked for an accounting firm, and Savas became the CEO of American Iron Works, a successful company that specializes in large-scale construction. The whole family was known to be close, not only to each other, but to the housekeepers they kept on staff to help run their home, a multi-million dollar estate in Washington, D.C., in walking distance of the vice president's stately home. While the couple was coming into their own, getting married and building a family together, Veralicia Figueroa, known also as Vera, was living in extreme poverty in El Salvador. Longing for a better life for her kids, she moved to Washington, D.C. in 2002. Getting hired to work for the Savopoulos family helped her dream of saving up for their college tuition come true. Eventually, Her financial support allowed her two kids to complete college in El Salvador, one becoming an engineer, the other a supply manager at a hospital. In May of 2015, she was planning to return to El Salvador to be with her kids and the country she missed when the unimaginable happened in the Savopolis home, a brutal quadruple murder. According to Associated Press, NBC Washington, and sources close to the family. Here's the basic timeline for the days and hours leading up to the four deaths. On May 13th, Vera was supposed to finish her workday at 3 p.m. as usual. A couple of hours later, at half past five, Amy called her husband, Savas, who was busy finalizing plans for the opening of a martial arts studio, and urged him to come home from work to watch their 10-year-old son, Philip, claiming she had made plans to go out. No one knows exactly how that conversation went down, but whatever Amy said got Savas to head there immediately. Whether he was aware of it or not as he drove there, Amy, Philip, and Vera were being held hostage. Early that evening, Savas called his personal assistant, Jordan Wallace, and instructed him to pick up cash from his bank account Jordan texted back, got your message, I'll call you when I get the package. That night, around nine, the family's second housekeeper, Nelly, received a perplexing message from Savas. He told her not to come in to work the next day, adding that Vera would spend the night at their home. On top of that, he said, Vera's cell phone was dead and they didn't have a charger. Looking back, that raises red flags, Not those that would lead you to wonder about a murder plot necessarily, but that her boss wanted her to know that Vera could not be reached seems odd. Was he trying to subtly relay some kind of message that they were in harm's way? Or maybe he wanted to keep her from digging for more information, with hopes of minimizing danger for all of them. Savas also told Vera by voicemail that Amy was sick and resting, Nearly the opposite of what he had shared with her earlier about her plans to go out. Here's text from the actual voicemail, which was released in an ABC News report. Hey Nelly, it's Savas. Amy is in bed sick tonight and she was sick this afternoon. And Vera offered to stay and help her out because, you know, we're going through some stuff with Philip. So she's going to stay through the night here, okay? Thank you. Oh, and would you send me a text when you get the message so I can make sure? Thanks, Nelly. Good night. Nellie didn't hear that message until the following morning, when she also received a text message from Amy that read, I am making sure you do not come in today. Given that, it does seem like the family wanted to protect her from whatever they were enduring. At some point during the night, Amy ordered two pizzas from Domino's and asked that whoever delivered them, leave them outside the front door. When the delivery person arrived, they did as they were instructed, picking up an envelope of cash left outside for payment. The next morning, May 14th, 2015, Vera's husband returned home from working a night shift, expecting to find his wife starting her day as usual, but she was nowhere to be found. It seemed as though she hadn't even returned home the previous night. Alarmed, he drove to the Savopoulos home at 9.30 a.m. and knocked on the door while daughter Alfaro sat in his car. No one answered, but he sensed that someone was inside. Something just felt off. Before driving away, he received a call from Savas. Alfaro overheard this conversation and later testified that Savas said, I'm really sorry, I'm really sorry, and explained that his wife Amy was sick and that Vera had accompanied her to a hospital, but he wasn't sure which one. He said he would find out and then call him back with details they never heard from Savas again. An hour later, Savas' assistant Jordan dropped a package off outside the home. It contained $40,000 cash, supposedly for use in the opening of a martial arts center Savas was working on in Chantilly, Virginia. Only those inside the home likely knew this money was for ransom. If only that had been the end of it, Someone wanted cash and got it, but at 1.30 that afternoon, the DC Fire and EMS responded to a call about a fire at the home. Video released the same week shows smoke billowing from the second floor of the tall, red-brick mansion. Once firefighters extinguished the flame and the initial investigation began, police chief Kathy Lanier spoke at a news conference. There were injuries discovered, including blunt force trauma and sharp object injuries, she said. Four bodies found in the home were later confirmed as those of Amy Savas and Philip Savopoulos and Vera Figueroa. Philip was found in his bedroom, the three adults on the floor of another bedroom, with their mouths bound by duct tape, near a bloody bat and a samurai sword. All four victims had been brutally beaten and burned alive. Quickly, an urgent manhunt began. Video footage showed what appeared to be a man dashing to the family's Porsche and driving away. That car was later found about 13 miles away in a church parking lot, torched as the house was. A great deal was lost in that fire, by far the worst of all, of course, four lives. One item that remained untarnished, a leftover throwaway pizza crust, brought about the biggest break in the case. Investigators linked DNA from that crust to a man who had worked for Savas' company some 10 years prior, 34-year-old Darren Wint. A joint fugitive task force that included U.S. Marshals and the New York City Police Department worked tirelessly to find him as the search spanned across states. They tracked him to New York City but just missed him when they arrived. Then, one week after the murders, members of the task force located Wint near a hotel parking lot in College Park, Maryland. He was a passenger in a white car, leaving the hotel after a white truck. Authorities followed both vehicles to Northeast DC then blocked them. An unnamed federal source told Fox 5 reporter Paul Wagner at the time that the suspect's brother was part of the group they apprehended. In the truck, they discovered $10,000 in cash. Shortly after Wint's arrest, the Savopoulos family released a statement expressing gratitude to law enforcement for their diligent work. While it does not abate our pain, it said, we hope that it begins to restore a sense of calm and security to our neighborhood and to our city. Our family and Vera's family have suffered unimaginable loss, and we ask for the time and space to grieve privately." At his trial in 2018, Wint faced more than 20 charges, including kidnapping, arson, and first-degree murder. News anchor and journalist Melanie Onwick who sat in the courtroom, said Winch seemed at ease and even appeared to smile as he strolled in on opening day. His defense team alleged that his younger brothers, Darrell and Stefan, were the real killers and conned him into going to the Savopolis home the day of the murders, and that Jordan Wallace, Savas' assistant who brought the ransom to the house, may have been involved. Prosecutors called these claims utterly ridiculous especially considering the fact that Wint was heard boasting about the murders to fellow inmates as he awaited trial. Based on evidence and the timeline of known events, Assistant Attorney Laura Bach said Wint tortured the four victims, mentally and physically, for almost 24 hours, adding, quote, it is clear that some of the victims heard and saw the deaths of their loved ones realizing both that they were going to meet the same fate and that there was nothing they could do to save those that they cared about. Savas' assistant, Jordan, testified that nothing seemed unusual the days leading up to the murders. He was helping Savas prepare for the grand opening of the new martial arts studio. Sometime during the evening of May 13th, without realizing the family was being held hostage— He received a voicemail from Savas, letting him know there had been a change of plans and asking him to report to the American Ironworks office the following morning to retrieve a package. In that voicemail, which was played for jurors, Savas sounded upbeat. He even joked about Jordan's outdated voicemail greeting. Was he trying to give the impression that all was well so that no one would be harmed or harmed further? At that point, did he believe they could all make it out alive if they just played along? When the voicemail message sounded in court, Jordan broke down crying on the stand. He said that when he picked up the package as instructed, Ted Chase, the company's chief financial officer, handed it to him and said, guard this with your life. Those words almost seem prophetic now. Jordan described his reaction as holy crap, Never before had he seen so much money. Shortly after 10 the next morning, Jordan received a text from Savas, telling him to leave the package in the driver's seat of a red sports car parked in the family's garage. Don't knock, he instructed, claiming he was in the middle of an important conference call. So Jordan did as he was asked, texted his boss, package delivered and went on with his workday, stopping for a meal on his way to a hardware store. Everything in Jordan's testimony, including his whereabouts at particular times, checked out. A few hours after leaving the package in the sports car, Jordan heard from a colleague who alerted him to a fire at the Savopolis home. He and others tried frantically to reach Amy and Savas, but it was too late. One particularly powerful witness for the prosecution gave what was considered a wild card testimony. Darren Wintz's brother Darrell, who Darren had called the mastermind of the murders, took the stand, spending the better part of an entire day in court, responding to questions about his activities on May 13, 2015. He said he had only vague memories about the day, which some say helped the defense's argument that he was extremely involved. But we also know that random days on which nothing standout happened aren't terribly memorable. Imagine trying to remember exactly what you did three years ago on a particular Thursday. Darren's defense team tried to cast doubt around whether Darrell might have been involved with the murders, but cell phone records showed he wasn't anywhere near the Savopolis home during the days in question. The day investigators trailed his brother down, with Darrell in the truck ahead of him, Darrell testified that after Darren called him multiple times that day, they met up at their father's house, where Darrell told his brother he had to pick up supplies at Walmart. Darren wanted to tag along and asked if they could make a stop to pick up fuel for his truck that had run out of gas on the side of some road. So they stopped for gas, Darren filling a large bucket, Then they headed to Walmart. Security footage showing the brothers at that store was played for the jury. After they left the Walmart, Darrell testified that Darren started directing him to a spot near a warehouse, supposedly to refill his out-of-gas car. He said his brother got out of the vehicle for about five minutes, taking with him a bag, maybe plastic, holding he didn't know what. Darrell said his brother then seemed distracted when he returned, like things weren't right as they drove away Darrell spotted smoke coming from the area Darren had just been he told the prosecuting attorney that at this point he knew something looked suspect he didn't ask him about it he said because he preferred to stay out of people's business the next morning Darren called Darrell more than two dozen times calls Darrell says he intentionally ignored and their cousin helped Darren burn his own car During the police-led manhunt for his brother, Darrell knew Darren was a wanted man. Posters featuring his face were everywhere. So the next time Darren phoned him, he answered. He didn't ask his brother if he was guilty or innocent because he said he didn't want to know. But he feared for Darren's safety, that he'd get hurt, possibly by police. So he told Darren he needed to come home and turn himself in. Originally, they planned to purchase money orders to pay for an attorney, he said, thus the $10,000 cash. Durrell also said he sought guidance from his cousin Roger, who agreed to help him if Darren wouldn't wait to turn himself in. He also insisted on driving a separate car. So Roger drove the white truck ahead of the car holding Darren and Darrell. They were on their way to turn him in when investigators found them. During cross-examination, Prosecutors asked Jarrell if he wanted to take the stand. He said no. He didn't want to be there and it was disappointing. That's my big brother, he said, according to court records. He should be ashamed of himself, for real. He also made it clear that while he received a subpoena to testify and spoke with prosecutors in advance, he had nothing to hide and never requested immunity. In the end, Darren Wint was found guilty on all 20 counts in the DC mansion murders and given four consecutive life sentences for brutalizing and taking the lives of 46-year-old Savas Savopoulos, 47-year-old Amy Savopoulos, their 10-year-old son Philip, and 57-year-old Vera Figueroa. Leading up to the trial, one of the two surviving daughters of the Savopoulos family posted a tribute to her lost loved ones online. Below a photo of her little brother, Philip, she wrote, would do anything to see that smile again. With a photo of her dad holding her, she said, you will always be my hero and my role model. Thank you for teaching me courage, loyalty, and how to believe in myself. Of her mom, she wrote, thank you for being the best mom I could have asked for. I will miss you every day. El Faro, one of Vera's daughters, told the Washington Post through sobs, she was my mother. She was the only person I confided my problems to. She was the grandmother to my kids. She was my friend. This has been Murder Minute. For a true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. For exclusive content and early access, Find the show on Himalaya.